I had two. I had two breakfasts. Yes, sure. Two breakfasts. Yeah, one was Bran Flakes at home, and the other one was down with the Employers Council. Excellent. And they had eggs and bacon and all that stuff. So. Oh, perfect. Well fed. I didn't take the fish from the goddamn water. <laughs> of the British Isles who came to Newfoundland during the summer months. Wisconsin, 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 Wisconsin. The problem of survival. Honorable member for Confederation. Half a million Order, please. Order, please. Order, please. Order, please. Hello, and welcome to the Indie Podcast. I am Independent Editor-in-Chief Drew Brown, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Andy Pullman, and our producer, Luke Quinton. We are currently recording in the Eastern Edge Art Gallery, which has been very generously donated to us for an hour today. Um, where we're going to talk with PC party leader Chess Crosby about all sorts of things, but mostly climate change and offshore oil. <laughs> um, it's going to be a great show. We're also going to talk to um, the Independence election correspondent, uh, Lee Chamori, about what's been happening on the third week of the campaign, debate week. It's been big. Um, no roundup today because we are just going to spend the time interviewing Chess Crosby. And you, you probably, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably informed enough to kind of know what's been going on. Yeah, it's, you know, it's all provincial politics all the time here right now. We're yeah. really getting into the, the, the real heat of the, uh, the election. Drew, last night was... Th- the debates. You covered that and tweeted it out, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Very <laughs> fun, very funny. It's truly a cursed art form, the live tweet. <laughs> um, what was your sort of, what was the overall experience of that like for you, and what was the scrum like after? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, like the debate was was fine. I thought it was an interesting format. Um, I think, you know, like an extra 15, 30 minutes would have been ideal, and I think also maybe having all three leaders answer every question would have been useful. Um, I mean, the, the one-on-one style, I think, I think honestly that helped Alison Coffin more than anybody because it presents, you know, like it looks like now there are three competitive parties as opposed to like two. And I mean, it also, I think, benefited the Premier in many ways because there were a couple really tough and interesting questions that he got to sort of sit on the sidelines for. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, as for the, the scrum portion, I mean, it was, it was a fairly standard uh, political scrum. We were in the lobby instead of the weird special scrum area just outside the house. Were there Um, any questions not asked during the debate that you would have liked to have asked? I mean, fundamentally, I think it would have been good to, like, I would have liked to hear what the, what Andrew Fury had to say about um, support for, you know, like, continued support for the oil and gas industry and mental health resources. And I, th- and I think there was a question about like uh, rural services that was put to Crosby and, and Coffin that I would have also been interested to hear the, the Premier's thoughts. Um, but I, otherwise, actually, I thought this was one of the better debates I've seen provincially in a long time. Like the format was really, like it was really good and dynamic. Um, I actually just would have liked to see a little bit more. But you know, that's it. I guess we'll lessons for like four years from now when we do this again. So you're Drew? Yes. Okay. I read your editorials every time it comes out. I'm one of your... 
uh, dues-paying <laughs> members, I guess. Twenty bucks a month, I think. And you're. I'm Andy. Should we start with what we're both dying to ask you? <laughs> we, we both really want to ask you. I hope it's something funny and lighthearted. It's, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. We've heard you're into yoga. We would love to hear about that. Yeah, I, I've admittedly been very curious about the the yoga story since um, Connor McCann told me about it. Um, yeah. Okay, sure. Uh, I guess I started uh, doing yoga in a in a you know, as a practice and going to classes when I went to Oxford University when I was 23 years old. And uh, my teacher was a gentleman by the name of Kofi Busia, whose father had actually been the Prime Minister of Ghana. I just sort of remember that little fact. And uh, Kofi was a great teacher and he taught in the Iyengar style, so anyone out there listening uh, who knows something about yoga would know that there, uh, there's a whole a variety of different styles and um, uh, ways of approaching the goals of yoga, which are physical and mental and spiritual. Although it's not, although it comes out of the Indian tradition, it's not affiliated with any uh, or connected necessarily with any religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I, I did Iyengar for a long time. Then about six or seven years ago, I got in a traffic accident, which was not my fault, by the way injured my shoulder and I uh, found myself stopping my anger classes for a while. Mm -hmm. And I took up a different style of yoga called uh, Kundalini. And it's quite different because mm -hmm. where Iyengar focuses on alignment and could even be described as militant about that. Right. And the poses tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be static in the sense that you're trying to get or perfect a particular pose each time you move into a pose. Mm -hmm. Kundalini is much more fluid movement, and they're not all that worried about um, the alignment or you know achieving a perfect pose because most of them have to do with a lot of uh, repetitive movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but hey, you know I I enjoyed that one. I enjoy Iyengar. I'm sure all the other styles out there are excellent as well. Can't recommend it enough. <laughs> yeah. No. I, well, yeah. I, um, do you practice daily? Um, yeah. I would have said yes up, up until the election campaign. It's become extremely difficult because yeah. of all the time demands. So, so now that we're talking about the campaign, can you take us through, like, how has the campaign been going for you? I mean, what's been your favorite part so far? We're about three weeks through. Yeah, you know, I think the favorite part actually is knocking on doors, and I've done that all across the province. I was in Labrador the week just before the election call, mm -hmm. and uh, so door knocking is not something I did up there. It's uh, P Canadians and Newfoundlanders Labradorians are pretty good about finding strange politicians on their doorsteps <laughs> and having conversations with them. By and large, the welcome, is, the welcome mat is out, even in the winter. Um, but outside of election periods, it's not something they're expecting. So um, during the election campaign, though, I've knocked on doors in numerous districts with my candidates across uh, the island of Newfoundland and on Windsor Lake doorsteps, and that's probably the part, the part I enjoy the most. When you go door to door, what's been the most significant issue that people are coming to you with? Hmm. Well, it certainly started off with um, why was the election campaign or election being called now before we had the benefit of knowing what's in the Moya Green Report? And that still remains the question. 
and it's even after last night's debates between the leaders, the televised debates, we still don't have a real answer to that. We're still in a situation where the Premier is asking us to trust him about what's in the Green Report. Um, it's due, due out two weeks after voting day, and yet he's not willing to tell Dame Green to uh, give us a draft of the interim report so we can see what's in it and, and give it due democratic consideration and debate and discussion before we vote. So naturally, that makes people uh, wonder if that's, uh, you know, the Premier's saying, trust me, but he won't trust us enough to show us what's in the report. And that excites all kinds of speculation of necessity about what's going to be in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you've expressed a fair deal of skepticism about um, the Moya Green Report and the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. So what sort of things are you expecting to be in the report and, and what would be sort of the PC alternative? to what is expected, I suppose? Well, we, uh, you know, we have a couple of sources of information from which we can make inferences about what's likely to be in the report. One is the terms of reference. And by the way, those terms of reference don't say anything about public debate or discussion uh, or consultation. There's consultation with groups that Dame Green decides to consult with. But some of those groups, like NAEP, and Jerry Earle has spoken to it, uh, feel that it was just a rubber stamp kind of exercise checking boxes and that there was no real consideration of any, uh, of, and no real discussion and no real consideration of union movement views during the course of that. And they left that, mm -hmm. and he said this and talked about it very dissatisfied. We know that Mary Shortle, uh, felt that she could no longer remain on the task force because uh, this, her sense of the direction of things was um, contrary to the interests and viewpoints of the people that she represented. And she, of course, is the president of the Federation of Labor. And uh, she could know, uh, being bound by an oath of confidentiality, she simply felt she couldn't stay there because she couldn't speak out and properly represent the viewpoints of the people she represents. So all that's, and I might add as well that the letter to Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, says nothing about seeking input from the public, nothing about discussion or debate or consultation. It just says implement this. Mm -hmm. So all that adds up to a program of things that uh, Premier Fiore doesn't want to share with us before the vote happens. Does it concern you that there's no MA, there's no member on this consultation? It's sort of secret, it's away. There's not a member of the House sitting on this. Why? Why yeah. is that the case? It's a very, he's touted this as, you know, the map for the future, his blueprint for the future, brightest and the best. It's going to redesign Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, if it's all that important, the problem, several problems are with it is that Dame Green, also I should mention, has a reputation from her past life and doubtless was chosen for that reputation of cutting uh, in many different situations. She is a, you know, a, uh, an austerity artist, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So what she brings to the table is a lot of background in that, and that just adds to the pile of evidence that says uh, what we can reasonably expect to come out of that, which is an austerity approach to the future, uh, a program of deep, deep cuts, and that that's how Premier Fury intends to take us into the future. 
All of that is extremely reasonable to infer from everything I've just told you, and if people are expecting that to be the green, Dame Green report, then they're probably right. I mean, I know the, uh, I mean, you're at the Employers' Council um, this morning. I mean, they, they are a bit rosier about what's going on with the report than, say, the union groups have been. Um, I don't know if that came up this morning. Um, maybe, but, you know, they would also recognize that in uh, the very rough uh, financial circumstances and economic circumstances we find ourselves in right now, and I've heard all manner of you know, experts, including the C.D. Howe Institute, which mm -hmm. is known as a, a pro-business or business-oriented think tank. None of them are counseling that we should go into deep cuts in this difficult time of uh, recession or even depression that we find ourselves in. They all recognize the principle that you don't cut your way out of a fiscal crisis. You have to grow your way out, and that's why I've been emphasizing jobs and growth and putting forward a detailed program of how to achieve jo jobs and growth, particularly putting emphasis on cutting red tape and a suite of tax incentives to mm -hmm. cause employers to hire people. On that note, drastically changing topics, but not, <laughs> not too drastically, do you believe in climate change? Uh, it'd be like saying, to say I don't believe in climate change would be like saying I don't believe in the theory of evolution. The, the evidence uh, recognized in the scientific community is simply too massive for anyone to reasonably take that position. So the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, On that note. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, so obviously um, the climate change concern um, is one major sort of tension that is uh, in conflict with um, our province's dependence on the oil and gas industry. Um, so leaving aside the environmental question, because I, I'm probably not, um, I mean, I'm not an environmental scientist, so this isn't my total wheelhouse, but um, I do try to follow the, the economic, economic side of the discussion. Um, so we, we know that the, you know, the, the new Biden administration um, is moving really quickly towards a uh, green transition. Um, I, th I think you've tweeted about the Keystone XL cancellation. Um, you know, we're seeing the Norway's sovereign wealth fund, uh, which was built from fossil fuel revenues, is now divesting from fossil fuels. Um, Exxon's posting massive losses. Uh, S&P is warning oil majors that they risk a major credit downgrade. Um, I mean, so there's, there's, in addition to the sort of the, the clim climate concerns with, you know, whether or not it's moral to pursue oil and gas um, development, um, there's a real sort of like economic question that our offshore uh, oil and gas assets could be stranded, um, otherwise, you know, sort of rendered not necessarily economically viable. Um, so g given these sort of economic pressures, how would your government position the province for a, a low carbon future? Uh, well, Drew, you know, most of, or maybe even all of what you just said there is true. Um, we should recognize and uh, give ourselves a little pat on the back for the fact that with Muskrat Online, we will have 98% green uh, hydroelectricity powering this province and also be able to export some of that to neighboring provinces to help them with their uh, climate change goals. So uh, in my platform, I do commit to the Paris Accord goal 
which is uh, based on 2005 emissions, but 30% uh, below that to be achieved within the next nine years to 2030. So mm -hmm. we commit to that. Now, uh, premiers going back to the late 90s, I think, have made various commitments about climate change goals. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, none of these have been met and we've fallen short each time. But I'm determined that that's not going to happen under my watch. So I just said to you that we've achieved 98% uh, uh, clean hydro energy with Muskrat Falls. Uh, we need to use some of that hydro energy on uh, things like there are supply vessels and other ships down in the harbor in St. John's, and for that matter, in other harbors around the province, and they keep their diesel engines running. Mm -hmm. We should be running lines down so that they can be electrically powered while they're in the harbor and not burning diesel fuel. That's just an illustration of ways in which the footprint can be lowered. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the whole offshore issue. 25, 30% of our economy. <clears throat> uh, the irreducible fact that everyone, I think, has to recognize is that oil and gas will be with us for at least the next 30 years. Uh, what has been discovered and capable of being produced is about half of the best estimates of what the world will need within the next 30 years. So there's another half as much again needed to be explored for and developed. Another half as much. So the question is who's going to do that? The world will need the product. We have advantages. We have a lower carbon footprint in our oil uh, than other parts of the world. And the fields that have been found off our offshore are massive sized fields. So mm -hmm. that puts us in the advantaged category for the development of those fields. And you know, so what do we want? Uh, do we want us to be the supplier to the world in the next 30 years or do we want somebody else to do that? Someone from the Middle East perhaps. Mm -hmm. I say uh, we should, it should be us. And there are reasons to say it should be us. Mm -hmm. And while we're doing that, we can, yes, keep an eye peeled for transition into other kinds of industries, but you need that kind of long adjustment process. The difference between that approach and the liberal approach, Mr. Trudeau's, and the approach Mr. Fury has now signed on for, is he wants, for ideological reasons, to, uh, for, the, for, the, for the offshore oil and gas industry to wind down and die right now. And that's the difference. I don't. I want to keep it going for that period of 30 years or so when the world will con continue during a transitional period to need oil and gas. As well, I want to develop those gas reserves. Gas has half the carbon footprint of coal, for example, when you use it to produce electricity. Mm -hmm. A place like China is building a new coal-fired electricity generating plant every two weeks. We can help them reduce their carbon footprint by using natural gas instead of coal to produce electricity while we're getting to those renewable answers mm -hmm. for uh, energy production. Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> in some respects we may have to uh, agree to disagree about some of the, the big picture ideological stuff, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily... But at least we can, uh, you know, as reasonable people, we can reasonably disagree. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, my personal stance is I, I'm not t totally sure that a federal government giving hundreds of millions of dollars to 
the offshore oil industry in late 2020 is necessarily committed to its imminent death. Um, and I, I, while I appreciate, you know, the idea that comparatively we do have low carbon emissions on offshore oil and gas, um, it is, I mean, it's, it's comparable to sort of like what is produced um, in, in Saudi Arabia um, with the notable difference that it's, it's much more expensive to develop that product here. So we may unfortunately be, even if we necessarily do have sort of a, a more environmentally friendly product, um, although that also is sort of a fraught concern. Um, we, you know, like we, the market unfortunately doesn't really have a sense of morality. So we're, you know, if, if it's too expensive to produce the oil here and it can come from elsewhere, I don't know. It's uh, your point about expense, by the way, is answered, I think, by the enormous size of the fields that we have. Mm -hmm. So while, yes, I've, in some ways, obviously, in a harsh environment, it's more expensive to uh, explore and, um, and produce, uh, the enormous size of the fields cut down the average cost enormously. And that's why I said we do have advantage oil in that sense, plus our low carbon footprint on as compared to other right. I mean, uh, world sources. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess like to go back to the planetary crisis part, I mean, we, we also know we can't keep extracting, you know, like most of what is currently in reserve has to remain in reserve in order to meet, um, you know, the Paris Accord climate goals. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I suppose this is this is this is this this would be its own interview, I guess. Yeah, I think we could um, we could spend a lot of time on this. I'd just yeah. add this point, Drew, that the industry itself, the oil industry, is 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 dramatically reducing its own footprint in the uh, exploration for, but more importantly, in the development of the resource as well. They realize where they have to go, and uh, they are by themselves getting there. Uh, they're no longer flaring off gas the way they were, which is a source of carbon, of course. They're mm -hmm. making all kinds of changes, and we can incentivize them. We right. can incentivize them to get to net zero even faster. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is my last point, and okay. then we'll, we'll move on. Oh, no, that's okay. I yeah. just wanted to ask this. Right. I just, uh, I, I mean, I just think that the, like, at the end of the day, even if we sort of do achieve, like, net zero in terms of the production of the resource, the oil still has to get burned up somewhere, right? So this, I think there's sort of, like, a, in terms of like carbon emission accounting, there's a little, little bit of a shell game happening, I think, in some respects. But I mean, this, this is certainly above my pay grade. Um, but uh, yeah. I, look, I understand the concern. I share it, or I wouldn't be committing to the Paris Accord goal. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Fishermen in Newfoundland are, of course, concerned about the development of oil and gas in their fishing grounds. Specifically, last year, Seamus O'Regan uh, sped up the nature of the environmental assessment for those areas. That sort of seismic work, exploring those areas, doesn't it damage an already fragile ecosystem? Those fishermen, I mean, what, <laughs> what can be done for them? Uh, certainly, I agree. It's a concern. You, you know, it seems intuitively... Um, possible that marine life might be uh, disturbed or even damaged by these uh, small explosions that they use to get their seismic data. The uh, NFAW uh, understandably has objections to it. I just don't know where the scientific consensus uh, stands on that and I certainly support that we take every possible, make every investment and take every possible measure to protect marine 
wildlife from any ill effects. So I spent last, a couple of days last week going through the archives looking at old editorial comics from the last, probably the last 50 years. Um, this one is, shows a man, Premier Dottie. Not, not just your publication, because you haven't been around that long. Oh, yes, no, this is... Oh, no, no, these are from, the, yeah, the Daily News, the Evening Standard, the Evening Telegraph, yeah. Um, this one shows Premier Dottie in a Newfoundland debtor's prison, and he's reaching for a giant key that says fishery and offshore oil. And this is from 1977. So to me, it's frightening because you see people still reaching for the same tools. Um, yeah, yeah. I, the, the I think that, that's yeah. duty, by the way. Oh, I, sorry. I actually, <laughs> I actually knew the gentleman, yeah. Did you? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, to, to me, that sort of speaks that uh, many of the issues we're currently facing in the 2021 election um, are, I guess, have been recurring for some time. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, arguably, this province has been in a cycle since at least Confederation, if not before. Yeah. yeah. And that gets you to the discussion of whether we're being treated fairly within Confederation. Probably the biggest instance that illustrates that is the development of our tremendous resource on the Upper Churchill, mm -hmm. the Upper Churchill Power Project and Dam. Mm -hmm. And as everyone's aware, we're involved in this terribly lopsided contract in which uh, Quebec gets by far the lion's share of the benefit, but that goes back to the unwillingness of the national government at the time mm -hmm. to um, allow us to transmit the power through Quebec to have a transmission line. We had to sell it to Quebec first. Mm -hmm. They had the power, the federal government did, uh, in the Constitution to allow us to have a transmission corridor. They were simply unwilling to use it because they did not want to offend Quebec. So our interests were sacrificed. And that's happened time and time again in many, so many areas, including the fishery, mm -hmm. which we don't control once we went into Confederation. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually an excellent segue into the next question. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've adopted this kind of firm stance that Ottawa is both the cause of and solution to many of our problems. Um, so, I mean, you sort of suggested as well that the province should consider, say, the threatening bankruptcy um, and selling off assets as part of renegotiating um, debt relief for the federal government. Um, I don't you, think I mentioned yeah. selling off assets, actually. No? Okay. No. I guess I misread a, an article. but. Um, in that case, could, could you just, I guess, uh, explain a little bit about, um, you know, how our province's position of, I would guess, structural weakness um, could actually be maybe a strength at the bargaining table? Uh, well, you know, the bottom line is that uh, no government in Ottawa, whether it's liberal or conservative or any other stripe, uh, wants to have a failed province on its hands. Mm -hmm. we're, we're struggling right now. We have to admit it. Everyone knows that. So uh, I think in Ottawa, they recognize the need to, um, to step up as partners of ours within Confederation. This is uh, a, a problem, we're in a problem now with historical roots. Mm -hmm. And part of the answer is addressing the historical, I'll call it discrimination that we faced within Confederation. You only have to recognize we have seven seats in Parliament and mm -hmm. Uh, given population realities, we will we'll never have more. And Quebec has, I don't know how many, but it's uh, usually more than us. Mm. So um, in terms of pure politics, Quebec's always going to win in who has more influence mm. and who politicians are going to 
pay more attention to. So what you've got to do, you're, if you're small, you've got to be mighty. You've got to court and develop uh, partners and allies within Confederation. Other provinces, uh, opinion, uh, you know, the guys who write the editorials for the Globe and Mail or the Calgary Herald, mm. um, you, you've got to go out and create a critical mass of opinion, plead your case to those people and get them on your side. That's all part of developing an alliance so that a small partner in Confederation, which is this province, mm -hmm. can come uh, to the dominant partner, which is the federal government, and present a persuasive case that will be all the more persuasive because you have allies backing up the justice of your cause. Mm -hmm. Who would you see as a natural ally to Newfoundland? What other province would you align yourself with? Uh, well, you know, I'm, since I don't have the job of premier, I haven't given that detail thought, but I know. Uh, so, for example, and let's just take joint management of the fishery, which we're in favor of. Mm -hmm. We lost control over the fishery when we went into confederation. Uh, it's a federal government jurisdiction. Nobody, I think, in this province would argue the federal government has exercised good stewardship over that resource. The collapse of the cod and the cod moratorium Mm -hmm. uh, 30, I guess it's 30 years ago now, or close to that, mm -hmm. led to a massive loss of population. Um, it illustrates the federal mismanagement. The way to correct that, I think, is through uh, a joint management approach in which we have a formally recognized voice in how all of this is done. And the cod, the cod I heard George Rose, Rose a couple of days ago being interviewed on CBC, he's the uh, conservation scientist, mm -hmm. and he said the cod management plan that was put out a couple of weeks ago by the federal government is just a management plan. It's not a conservation and recovery plan. So when we have a voice at the table through joint management, I think those kinds of things will begin to be addressed. But the, my point is this, mm -hmm. that we need to enlist and get on our side provinces like Nova Scotia first before the federal government is going to take seriously our proposal to do joint management because if Nova Scotia agrees with that, and maybe if Prince Edward Island agrees with that, then it's going to be a hard argument for them to resist. One of your candidates came to my door, and I was quite surprised that they were running with your party. Um, and we had a great conversation. I would consider voting for this person. And Do you care to share the name? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. It was Robin Legro. Mm -hmm. And um, I know the work she does in the community, um, specifically food security work. I really admire her. And I expressed surprise that she was running for the Conservatives. She seems like a natural candidate for another party. And she mentioned to me that um, she believed the party was hopefully starting to lean left socially re while remaining fiscally conservative. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. I thought that was really interesting. Well, don't forget the name of the party is the Progressive Conservative Party. So I, I've always thought of the Progressive Party as being um, socially progressive and the conservative part as being fiscally conservative and in favor of sound fiscal management. Just right now, in this particular fiscal crisis we find ourselves in, the answer, however, is not belt tightening. It's actually uh, tax expenditures to stimulate job creators into employing people, getting the economy back on its feet through growth and more jobs, and that's how you produce the wealth to be able to afford the public services that uh, people are used to enjoying. Perfect. Um, and I guess just one final question before we wrap up. 
Um, so what does Newfoundland and Labrador look like in 10 years if, you know, when you gaze into the crystal ball? So uh, it's going to be, <clears throat> you know, uh, four or five to 10 years of uh, uh, careful but diligent, um, diligently cutting down, first of all, the deficit and then beginning to pay down the debt. Don't forget that oil prices are cyclical. And while they've been at historic lows in the recent months, partly through the impact of the pandemic, uh, most people would expect that they'll be higher yet again. And in fact, right now in the, I think it's the low 50s for Brent crude, they're not too bad at this moment either. Mm -hmm. But what we got to do is be careful if we, if we happen to come into a, uh, an inheritance, so to speak, right, uh, with the spike in oil prices, mm -hmm. not to just spend that on uh, more programs and, and more government spending, but to use that and husband it to pay down our deficit and eventually our debt. When you see that in 2041, we will come into uh, much fuller ownership of our resources on the upper Churchill, in other words, the Churchill project, mm -hmm. then I think you can foresee a golden age for this province. We just have to do things carefully and right and uh, build the jobs economy and the growth economy and uh, exercise careful stewardship of our spending so that we pay down the deficit over the intermediate term with some fiscal room given mm -hmm. to us by our partner, the federal government. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking about a just transition to Newfoundland's golden age. Newfoundland and Labrador, it's golden age. I yes, say. I think that's the case because we have these tremendous, these terrific resources that uh, so far um, circumstances have prevented us from fully enjoying the benefit of, but we will. Mm -hmm. Is that good, guys? Just yes. So, I mean, just transition. Though, is this something they're thinking? Is a just transition something they're planning for? Is that something they're aware of? Is that is, is, is drawing down the oil industry and moving to some sort of renewable thing part of the PC plan? Like yeah. Is that in factor in there in a practical way? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there has to be a transition. As I said, the consensus is that we'll need oil and gas for, let's say, 30 years. Um, and so in recognition of that, we've got to plan, do some long-term planning about what's going to take the place of that. But uh, if we're prudent and if we plan and we look ahead, then there will be a transition and everyone will realize there has to be a transition and we'll put the, uh, the groundwork for that transition into other forms of industry and use the tremendous wealth that our offshore can yet produce for us to finance the doing of that. We just have to acknowledge uh, what's coming and uh, make plans around dealing with it. Fair enough. That's Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank so you very much. much for your time. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it. It's been thank fantastic. You. Thank yeah. you very much. I guess you'd describe your audience as left leaning, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm the most conservative one. <laughs> Hard to say. But anyway, I don't think there's anything in what I said that's too deeply offensive. No, no, I don't think so either. Honestly, this was, this was really good. Um, that was hard. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it was... It, 
It, was, it wasn't as hard as I was actually expecting. Uh, I didn't really know what to expect, but I mean, for the most part, I think that was, that was other than uh, a little bit of tension in the middle of the conversation, I thought it went quite well. Where did you think the most tension was? Well, <laughs> probably when you asked him if he believes in climate change. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but I did want a straight answer. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, I just thought, I just thought that there would be, um, it would be a, a useful way to start that dialogue. But then as yeah. soon as I asked it, I was like, oh man, there wasn't the most useful way to start this dialogue. Although, it, there was something nice to, about hearing him say that he believes in climate yeah, change because I, mean, I was, had this perception that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there is probably in many cases an unfair perception, perhaps. But uh, yeah, you know, like uh, yeah, actually, I think the uh, the comparison to the theory of evolution was that was pretty spot on. That, it was that is, spot on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually as far as like conservative politicians in this country go, that's actually a fairly enlightened approach. Yeah, I mean, he's he's very intelligent and well briefed it things things that i knew i knew and questions i had practiced became less articulate around him because he is so confident in in that is spooky <laughs> that was um that was spooky it was such a different um vibe mm. yeah could not have been more different from Alison Kaufman. it was so different yeah, well I'm, yeah i mean i guess that's to be expected yeah um did you guys find you I froze totally. Yeah, yeah I definitely there were, froze. There were a few moments I kind of and like obviously like I. It's in the, Yeah, like in the, in the in the questions we drafted, like there was one question about climate change, offshore oil, but that turned out to be a lot of this conversation, just because I guess like. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there, yeah there there is a lot to unpack, and also you know like I think. And I think we there's such a different. Um, well, it's a very different. Well, it's a different it's, stance. Yeah, it's, and it's it's also like. Uh, I mean, to his point about, you know, like how this is different than like traditional media stuff. Like, yeah, I don't think, you know, most of the time a politician goes on to talk about our clean offshore oil and it just goes, right? Like yeah. there's no point where it's like, well, I don't know about that actually. Well, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I, what was really difficult about the climate change conversation was the, that it, there was no specifics. There was no... We have, this is how we're going to transition workers. This is a program yeah. that we're building. It, it's, it's spoken about in generalities, and that makes it very tricky to like, ask further questions because yeah. all you can really ask is, can you be specific? And then they don't want to say no. <laughs> yeah, well I, mean, well, I mean, like we, that was a little bit the same thing with Allison. Right? Yeah, I guess absolutely. It was, just like, it, was, it was less tense in the moment just because we were like, yeah, green transition, that sounds great. Everybody loves this. But. I, I, I really wanted to ask him, I had questions written out about. I think you know, it was only like after you listen to the answers, like, wait a minute, actually, that was, okay. Yes. <laughs> we actually didn't get an answer to that question. No, no, we were just like. A bit dazzled by her hands and her her, her sparkles. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very it's a different style for sure. It, yeah. What would you do differently? I wanted to ask tomorrow, him. If you had the chance, yeah. I wanted to ask him about his answer to the mental health question last night on the debate, and I wanted to ask about the debate in general and how he felt about it, because yeah. his 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 experience of that debate, I wanted to know, did it coincide with how it felt to be a viewer? Did he feel like he presented well? Did he feel like the, he answered the questions astutely? I wanted, I guess I wanted a, a moment of vulnerability with him, but he's really got a hard shell. Like I wanted him to sort of tell us a little something about himself, but I yeah. still feel like I don't know him. Yeah, I mean, 
we we found out the time of yoga. He practices at least. So yeah, we did. That was that. good. I mean, I think I think that's I I think that's about as vulnerable as you're gonna get with Jess Crosby. Yeah. Honestly, I mean. Militant yoga, and then now less militant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, I mean, realistically, we we could have done a whole. Show. I would have loved to talk more about the Kundalini yoga stuff. I honestly, it's super fascinating. That's like that's a whole. That's the whole interview. Maybe maybe after the election when things have calmed down a bit. Yeah. We can have him back and just like just just all yoga all the time. I thought his question at the end, and I don't know if our mic was still on, but his question at the end is if the audience of this is left leaning. I thought that was interesting because when we talk about climate change, people automatically assume that you are left leaning if you are worried about climate change. And it's kind of crazy to me, like we actually should all be, regardless of our other sort of Everyone is going to be impacted by climate change. Yeah. It, can't, it shouldn't be a left-leaning issue. It should be a, an issue. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the general direction like things are trending in. Like, obviously, all the solutions we talk about um, for greenhouse gas emissions are like extremely liberal market solutions, right? Which, like, carbon tax, perfect example. Like, that's pure, like, that's not a left-wing position. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you, like, so here, here's my, and I don't know how listeners will feel about this, but... Like, as a sort of semi-observer, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. a few feet away, what I noticed and what I took from both this interview and the interview with Allison is this province is fucking ruthless. We have no plan. None of these parties yeah. seem to have... Now, he had a huge book with him that presumably presents a plan. Yeah, and, well, I mean... I, I know. I would love if he had just left that. <laughs> I was like, forget your mind or... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, which, like... Fair enough. I think, like, to, you know, like, some sympathy for the devil. I think it is okay <laughs> if opposition parties don't have the fully fleshed out, like, plans. Like, let's, like opposition is really tough. It's really tough. Um, you know, it's... What are you working? What are you asking for voters, then? Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's part of the problem with this whole fucking election. There's, like, nothing to talk about. There's nothing to discuss because we realize that we're in this, like, painful structural bind, and there really is no way out except dealing with the federal government. And so it's a question of, like, do we fight the feds? Do we fight or beg? Yeah, basically, <laughs> which, I mean, like, and I mean, that was, that was the debate last night, right? Like, it was, you know, Crosby sort of, like, we're going to stand up to Ottawa, and this was, that was again today. Um, and Kerry was like, no, we're going to, like, we're going to work with Ottawa. We're going to, we're all going to be on the same team, which is kind of like, yeah, so I guess it's, uh, but, but that, like, that's like the, that's like the horizon of the entire fucking electorate right now. Is like, <laughs> who's going to help us? If you guys were in their shoes, like if you were running a political party, would you come up with some sort of plan for at least, say, I don't know, five pressing issues, or would you just let it float? sort of as they're doing and not respond to questions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all just like crisis management. I mean, like this, there's a lot more going on. Um, I, I genuinely do think that like, we're just like, our institutions are just like degenerating. Like this is the end, you know, like realistically, like the world kind of ended here with the COD moratorium and we're just sort of living in this like 30 year fallout of just like, just, like, Community governance has just kind of like fallen apart. It's been completely like professionalized. Everything is run by a small cadre of comms people. Well, that's just it. All of the party leaders um, have hired great, competent comms people who teach them not to say anything. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this and is instead like, of actually building great, strong yeah, platforms, like this is, I think this is like this is less like a problem with like any individual politician or even political party here. It's just like it's it's a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. Like there's just like the. The, the bench is really thin 
for everybody, including like the governing party. Like, like this is, I mean, this is why like they're farming out the decision-making abilities to the, the, the PERT, right? Because like, I, I genuinely like, you have to wonder if like, is there enough, is that like talent that is being represented on that committee? Like, is it available to like our political system right now? And I think the answer is no. And that's like, that's really fucked up. And I can't tell if I need a sandwich or if I'm, um like still extremely anxious from, but I, I thought of several good jokes through it and like I just couldn't say the jokes because I was like, this is not a joking space. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was hoping, you know, I was hoping like we ease into things, we'd all kind of like relax and have more of like a conversation. So basically what happened when we interviewed Allison, but I guess that's, you know, it's not the case for a variety of reasons. Yeah, do you think if I hadn't asked the climate change question, it would have gone that way or do you think it wouldn't have happened because there's, there's such, it's such a different vibe? I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he. Like, I don't think he. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he took like offense, but I mean, I think it definitely like it. It turned the heat up a little bit for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, like my my approach would have been modestly a little bit more diplomatic, I guess. But I mean, there's also, you know, what it is actually also good to just put the direct question on the table. Yeah, you ask a question that is like literally. Long. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Right. That's yeah. You know. We did offer up a lot of great evidence, though. In that yeah, I try. You know, I tried, You know, I tried to be. <laughs> you know. It's um, yeah. <laughs> I, I tried. To, I tried to. You know, sort of. I guess. Uh, really gently, delicately wrap this touchy question. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think melding the two styles. Yeah, no, well, I think this is, well, I think this is why it's such a good format. It's like real, like, good cop, bad cop. It's great. Yeah. Um, that is, um, that was really quite scary. I, I really don't know why. I really, I really was frightened doing that. And, and really, I'm, he's, he's a dad. He's probably, he does yoga. He's probably an absolutely lovely guy. He's probably beloved by his friends. Yeah. Why am I so scared? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I thought this was quite pleasant, all things considered. Yeah. Um, well, he, yeah, he, and he, I honestly supports the independent. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, fuck, I hope he still gets his $20 a month after this. Yeah, me too. I'm here with uh, the Independence 2021 election campaign correspondent, Alicia Mori, and uh, we're going to talk about the things that are happening in week three of the provincial election campaign. Uh, how's it going? Going pretty well. How are you? Good. I am surviving. <laughs> uh, I'm at the end of week three, which is the main thing. Um, this was a big week, though. We had uh, yeah. three back-to-back debates. Incredible stuff. Yeah, we went from very little information to an almost overwhelming amount this week in some ways. Well, yeah, a lot of words with not much content in other ways, but yeah, um, yeah. So I guess the best thing maybe uh, we can talk about what the debates were like uh, this week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Monday started off a little bit quiet with the NLTA Newfoundland Teachers Association forum. Yes. So all three party leaders were there, but they had the questions given in advance, so right. it was mainly. Uh, sticking to their messaging that yeah, we'd already was, seen up to that point yeah it was it was fairly fairly scripted um yeah but still nice to see you know it's nice to at least like get a glimpse of particularly pretty fury as he has had significantly less public exposure than the other two so it's you know it's nice to actually see him in action yeah absolutely um 
but uh, he was missing from the NLFL debate the uh, the second day. Yeah. Yes, the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor debate on Tuesday. So mm-hmm. uh, Fury notably absent. He was replaced by Siobhan Cody, who was the deputy premier and minister of finance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was a big point brought up by both Crosby and Coffin. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, I think fairly sort of emphasized that the premier was not there. Um, although Siobhan Cody used it as an excellent soapbox opportunity for her feminist bona fides, bona fides. I don't actually know how you say that term, but it's a term I just read and don't say out loud normally. Yeah, so Latin, yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. My uh, first year Latin teacher, please do not listen to this podcast. Yeah, um, but there was speculation that Fury was absent from this debate because um, the Federation of Labor is headed up by Mary Shortall, who kind of dramatically resigned from the premier's economic recovery team back in January. So yes. that was some speculation. Yeah, the that debate definitely had, I think, some of the more like pointed uh, social policy questions that the liberals, for various reasons, have not been super fussy to talk about, um, which I guess is why they sent Siobhan. Yeah, they did release a statement saying that he had a busy travel schedule and he was busy preparing for the following night's debate. Yes, yeah. The, so... Yeah, the sort of uh, the the real like off the cuff, no prepared questions, televised debate that people would actually see. The first two debates you basically had to like log into the live stream on Facebook. Yeah, not um, necessarily high viewership, I imagine. Of yeah, those two. and sort of like more very specialized. You know, like the first debate was like all about education policy, which is really interesting and important, especially if you have children in the education system. But for people who don't necessarily have a dog in that race. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little, it got a little bit in the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, plus the scripted answers are a little bit less compelling than when you actually sort of put people on the spot. Um, but that was, yeah, that was last night was the sort of the, the fun, cool, dynamic debate on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Co-hosted by CBC and NTV. Mm-hmm. The format was pretty interesting too. I thought they paired off the leaders and asked them different questions. Yeah. I thought that was, that was an interesting format. It definitely made it sort of like dynamic. I actually thought it was one of the better debates that I'd seen in the province in a long time. Um, if it had been like a little bit longer, I think that would have been good. Hmm. Um, and if they'd sort of like, if they had maybe put, because there were only three people there, I think they could have put the questions to all three people. There were a couple of points where yeah. like, there were a few questions like that the premier was sitting out on that I would have really liked to hear his answer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like there was a question about like, you know, support for the oil and gas industry. There's a question on like, will you cut rural services? There was another question mental on health, mental health I think resources. he was out on. And yeah, the, that was, uh, yeah, the one so, about systemic racism as well. Yeah, so there were a couple sort of like really significant questions that I would have been very interested to hear his responses for. But I mean, I think the real benefit or the real beneficiary of this format was definitely, I think, Allison Coffin because it sort of levels the playing field between all three parties, makes them all seem like they're equally competitive and significant to the process which is good for the small parties um and i guess also good for the big party that doesn't want to talk about anything difficult uh yeah it was good yeah there was was a lot there it's kind of hard to summarize but the first question was related to minimum wage it was pretty much the same answers we've been hearing so far yeah coffin committed to it and um sure he said we have to look at all the options which mm -hmm. is a really polite way of saying no yeah. Um, yeah, which is like, I mean, even the fact that like the first question in the televised debate was about minimum wage is quite impressive. Even when this campaign started, I wouldn't necessarily have predicted that. But I think um, it's been put on the agenda for sure. 
Uh, certain media outlets have done a lot of coverage in pushing this question, uh, which is great to see. <laughs> uh you know that was it the, yeah which actually speaking of media the other thing i did notice about the debate last night so in 2019 when they did this um the sort of like joint media production it was cbc ntv and also the telegram had a presence there so they sent dave Marr to question various leaders which is kind of funny in retrospect but yeah like that didn't happen this time it was just cbc ntv and i actually don't think the tele like the in the media cell last night the telegram didn't have any representation which i thought was interesting yeah that was i expected someone to show up but there was nobody so shout out to your live tweeting by the way it's very good (laughs) very well done thank thank you it is a true curse yeah Uh, so what else did they talk about during the debate they uh asked whether layoffs are coming and fury made it seem like they're not so yeah like this is this is what's really like strange because the Tory like there's, there are a lot of really weird things about this election. But w- one thing that's really weird is like the the Tory messaging has been very you know like they're going to cut things, they're going to cut things, they're going to cut things, and the premier's sort of been very emphatic like that's not happening. Um, there's no real evidence one way or the other because obviously like we don't know what the Green report is going to come back with when it does report. Um, and it also I mean it's it is sort of strange that the the Tories are so adamantly opposed to cutting everything even though they're also very aligned sort of with the interest groups that do want to see cuts. It's a little I don't know. There's they're trying to square a circle and I'm not totally sure that it's working. Mm-hmm. But obviously we'll see what the voters think i guess yeah and we should see platforms i think liberal ones just been released like 15 minutes ago so supposedly i saw and uh, the pc one is going to be released by the end of the week so maybe we'll get a bit more uh like yeah figures and messaging uh, but yeah i mean it's it'll be nice to know that there are finally platforms and people can sort of like look at what is coming although i know um Chess Crosby has been very sort of emphatic that what is going to appear in their platform has largely already just been already released. Right, um, yeah. This is sort of the case with the NDP one that came up the other day as well. I haven't seen the liberal one, but I would not be shocked if it was also just like a, you know, one-stop shop for everything they've already announced. I think Fury even said last night that it would be, but it would be costed unlike the NDP one, which yes. didn't have any money attached to different yeah. endeavors. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean that. Uh, I mean that's always pretty fun. It, whether or not you know they're costing sort of like the big questions that everybody's sort of actively thinking about, or mm. they're just putting a dollar figure on the stuff they've already announced. Right, which, the announcements like, like entrepreneurship training and the yeah. small things like that. Yeah, like yeah, like on like all great announcements. There have been a lot of like great liberal policies, but you know, fairly small potatoes comparatively. Um, but we'll see what's in the platform. Yeah, we'll see. I'm hoping to look at what the parties have announced from a natural resource development lens and environmental policy lens. So today and tomorrow, I'm going to be talking to some experts in that field just to kind of round up what's been said this week, because there's been a lot mentioned throughout those debates. It's true. On certain areas and not so much in other areas. So yes, it'll be very good to get some context on that. Yeah, so uh, the third district focus is coming out this week. I As soon as I leave here, I'm going to go home and finish ed- editing it. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Uh, you were talking to the candidates in Lake Melville. Yeah, I've talked to all five candidates in Lake Melville this Excellent. week, which was really interesting mm. for me to hear directly about issues in Labrador, which are totally different than yeah, Newfoundland, very, of course. Very but, different from the two sort of like St. John's districts we've visited so far. Yeah, absolutely. So I got... Uh, some really interesting perspectives on areas such as how best to go about reconciliation and um, mm. the future of natural resource development. 
Yeah, in we, Labrador. I'm I am very excited to see what the various candidates had to say about the Atlantic Loop and Gull Island. That's uh, that's gonna be cool. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, without spoiling anything, I guess. Yeah, uh, wicked. Lake Melville does seem fairly wide open right now, and that I can see like two to four different candidates easily like taking it. Depending yeah, on how things go. absolutely. It's really interesting because of the political controversy that we've talked about already. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's two independents running, both Perry Trimper, who, who's the incumbent, and mm-hmm. Andrew Abbas. Mm-hmm. But the NDP are represented by Amy Norman. Liberals are represented by Michelle Bakey. Mm-hmm. And the PCs are represented by Shannon Tobin, who came quite close in 2019, actually, yeah. to getting the seat. So I, it's definitely a district to watch and could go a number of ways. Yeah, it, uh, that one's going to be very fun on election night. Thank you for coming on to give us the uh, roundup for the week three of this election. And yeah. uh, I can't believe it's almost over. This I is, know. This is wild. I can't believe it. Looking forward to seeing how everything plays out next week. Yes. It has been quite the odyssey. Um, thank you very much, Alicia. For You're welcome. To us Anytime. This. Awesome. All right, and uh, that's our show for this week. We'll be back again with more election coverage in a few days. Um, But in the meantime, there's lots of great stuff at theindependent.ca. Like last week, uh, Russell Williams wrote an excellent article about the economic impasse that the province finds itself in that everybody is thinking about, but none of our politicians are really keen to discuss in any great level of detail. and yeah, we also published uh, our district focus for St. John's Center, which is a super interesting race. Um, it's probably the most progressive district in the province, or at least that's the vote that everybody seems to be going for. So there are lots of really interesting answers in there. The Independent is 100% supported by donations from its readers. So if you enjoyed this program or any of our work and would like to see more like it, you can donate um, at Support the Independent when you log on the website. There's a big button. Um, you can also sign up for a free indigestion newsletter, which I think has started going out this week. I should probably know this, but I am not 100% sure. I know that we have launched a crowdfunding campaign um, to take us through to the end of the election, just so we can, you know, scale up for when the aftermath arrives and we've got to deal with it. That's it. Mm-hmm.